Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Welcome to the Once for All Delivered podcast. I am Andrew Smith, joined by my usual co-host. I'm Caleb Castro, and I was kind of taken aback you didn't uh, mention any lads or lasses. Oh, yeah, my bad. Hello, lads and lasses. Oh, fad (laughs) lads and man. (laughs) So we're recording this on a Monday morning, so I'm... This is usually my day off, and I'm not mm-hmm. used to being awake or thinking or doing anything on a Monday. So, so pardon my uh, inability to do anything. Te absolvo. We don't do that here. We don't do that. <laughs> so I uh, actually, so uh, as Andrew was saying that, uh, so we were on a video call, uh, and we can see each other. Uh, and he lifted up a really big uh, mug of coffee. Just then, and, and yeah. uh, I think it's funny because I I'm in kind of the same boat where I have a, uh, I actually have like two big large cups of iced coffee. <laughs> it's one of those. It's Ooh, it's a Monday. Yeah. yeah, Garfield. Well, yeah. So this is the OFAD. You are the OFAD lads and lasses, uh, and we are co-hosts, and we are here to talk about uh, comparing catechisms, like you already know, since you saw the title. And we are going. Unless you didn't. If so, I don't know how you got here, but if yeah. you, by some way you did, Auto um, we're here to compare catechisms as we often do. Yeah, and the comparison of our catechisms is uh, Lord's Day Eleven in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, we are we are continuing with the uh, exposition from the outline of the catechisms, exposition of the Apostles' Creed which uh, are question and answer 29 and 30 today concerning why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is the Savior, which corresponds with Westminster Larger Catechism, question 40 and 41. Westminster Larger Catechism 40 and 41, which kind of focuses in a little bit more uh, specifically on his person and work, far more explicitly. The Catechism has it in mind, but the Westminster Larger Catechism saying it. Mainly 41. Yeah. Well, one of the issues with this particular section is the Westminster, I mean, it addresses everything that is said here in the Heidelberg, but it's usually addressed under other sections and other topics that we either have already talked about at some length or as we continue, Lord willing, we'll talk about at some length in the future. So I don't know how much you really have to bring from the Westminster this time, but uh, I'm sure we can always find something to talk about here. I got a way to link that up. What we'll do today, I was telling Andrew earlier, this Lord's Day is best looked at in a very straightforward uh, history of redemption in scripture way. Mm -hmm. Now we can go that route in a lot of scripture passages then, but uh, I just want to look at a couple here. Uh, so first, uh, we'll read uh, the question answer 29. This asks, uh, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? And the answer, because he delivers us from all our sins and saves us, and because no salvation is to be sought or found in any other. So if you look at the name Jesus, uh, first of all, we have to think 
conceptually uh, of what names are in scripture. In the past, names were very important. Names told you something about a person and kind of the hopes for that person and what they might do. In scripture, they spoke about the person's character and their work. They were often perhaps even prophetic in many ways. Just the other day, I was going through um, our morning uh, worship service, uh, preached on you know Genesis 10 on the table of the nations, uh, the list of genealogies. And one name there is the name Peleg, the son of Aver, who uh, the father of the Hebrews. This is being in the line of Shem, the son of Noah. Uh, the name Peleg basically means divided. This name was either, you know, prophetically given to him before the account of the Tower of Babel when the nations were uh, divided up because of language, the introduction of language. So Peleg's name had a meaning. So we, we want to look at then of, of the name like, say, Jesus, that name has a meaning. What does his name tell us about his person and his work? That's the main starting place. And this might be a question that we don't often consider, you know, because of the way we think of names in our day. We hear names and just think they're names and nothing more. I mean, maybe you go down the rabbit hole and try to figure out what your own name means or where it came from or whatever. But um, so what's interesting about the name Jesus is it's actually Joshua quite literally is this it's the same name which kind of points us maybe in where we're going in redemptive historical studies and things of the sort just a distinction to lay out at the outset here i was looking at uh, johannes gerhardus boss's commentary on the larger catechism and the similar issue it raises in 41 and 42 in fact maybe i think i'll just go ahead and read question 41 here because it's so similar and then we can just kind of talk about all of it together uh, question 41 of the larger catechism is why was our mediator called Jesus? Our mediator was called Jesus because he saveth his people from their sins. So basically you have the first part of exactly what the Heidelberg says here, too. And that's also what I'm saying, too, of the, uh, the when we're saying person and work. What's his person? Well, he's right. mediator and what's his work? Mediation and salvation that way. Right. And so there's the distinction that comes here because, you know, we think of Jesus Christ and we probably uh, in our modern Western ideas of names think of it all as personal name. But it's actually not. It's basically Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is a personal name. Now, mind you, it still carries meaning and significance as a personal name. And then Christ is a title. So it basically mm -hmm. is Jesus, the Christ, mm -hmm. uh, Christ being anointed one Messiah, which we'll get into that in more detail when we look at Lord's Day 12. But yeah, so it's important to make the distinction at the outset of what these names actually are and how they function linguistically in reference to the person and the work. Yeah, and so in this way, in, in the biblical sense, the name will tell the story of the person. It says who the person is and what he does. In this way, the implication of the name Jesus as Savior is that it implies we need to be saved from something. And this is what the Heidelberg says in question 29, that he delivers us from all our sins and saves us. It tells us what we need to be saved from all our sins. It's saying then that we can't bring about this salvation or deliverance of ourselves. That's required by someone else. And then that's also intimated with the larger catechism question 40 and saying that we need a mediator as well. We need someone who mediates on our behalf. 
someone who is and does that for us. And from looking at previous Lord's Days, we know that we need mediation between man and the Father because we're alienated from the Father by our sins. Mm -hmm. On top of already, you know, being separated by the creator-creature distinction yeah. and such, but then, yes, further separated because of the fall and sin. Yeah, that distinction is that uh, we didn't need a redemption or salvation before the fall. We needed a mediator still, really. We needed God's condescension to us. Apart from that, we would have no relationship to him, no... Yeah, we would have nothing of him unless he gave it to us. There also has to be someone between the creator-creature distinction. So whatever Jesus is or the Son of God is must be from eternity. Mm -hmm. Him as mediator isn't something that he became necessarily even then from the fall, but uh, that he was appointed mediator before the foundations of the earth as the head, right. uh, as the head of the elect, not the head of the covenant, that's something that comes in historically, but he is the head of the elect eternally and the mediator. Uh, he is the surety that man mm. has access to God, the creator, eternally. And this gets into, like, for instance, the covenant of redemption, which itself is a somewhat controversial idea mm -hmm. that there could be a covenant between the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. More of the controversy is over the name, calling mm -hmm. it a covenant, basically. Yeah. Um, there are many that would affirm the substance of it while saying, yeah, we don't call that a covenant because it has some potentially problematic implications. Yeah. But but in general, yeah, the, the doctrine of God's eternal decree of redemption, yeah. uh, however you prefer to label it or call it. The concept of the covenant of redemption is really something of the historical result, in a manner of speaking, uh, something of a historical result or effect of the eternal decree itself. So it's, right. it's a sub-aspect of the eternal decree, which is based ultimately in God in the mind of God, in his will, his perfect counsel, his wisdom. But here, I think a, an interesting note would be Isaiah 43, verse 11, as a good way to kind of look at all this now. Uh, Isaiah 43, 11, uh, this simply just says, I, even I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no savior. In other words, we have to think really carefully about this then, where in this, with the prophecies in Isaiah of the redemption of Jacob, of uh, the nation of, of God's people that God had been saying, basically, even though you are apostatizing, even though you you act against me and constantly rebel, oh man, oh people of God, I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Uh, I have delivered you in the past. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba in your place. You're precious in my sight and so on and so forth. He then says that I alone am savior i the lord god this is a lengthy divine discourse where god is saying you are my witnesses and my servant whom i have chosen that you may know and believe me and there he's speaking of his christ where he says and my servant whom i have chosen so that you israel may know and believe me and understand that i am he before me there was no god formed nor shall there be after me there's no other god in that eternality as well again. Yes, uh, it's Alpha Omega. Before me, there's none other. Besides me, there is no Savior. So if, if there is no other Savior other than the Lord God, maker in heaven and of earth, and that there is no other God, there is only this one God, this one true God, 
then when we're faced with the reality that Jesus, his name is Savior, then we are faced with basically a proclamation here of, do you believe? Do you believe this is God? If we take that Isaiah 43, 11, besides me, there's no Savior. And then we go to something like uh, Matthew 121, which is the primary scripture proof for both Lord's Day 11 in the Heidelberg and question 40, sorry, 41, I think, in the larger catechism. You take that in consideration. Uh, so this is where the angel uh, announces to Joseph, the uh, betrothed with Mary, in a dream. The angel appears and announces Mary's conception. Mary has conceived by the Spirit. And the angel says that she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then the exposition of his name for he will save his people from their sins. So already there you have the identification of Jesus as Savior, but then also that he is the one over a people's. Uh, this is going back to Isaiah 43, 11. God will save his peoples, and he is the only Savior. Um, and then just one more, you can you, you can look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20 to 25, where Jesus is identified as the high priest, that he is the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety, that is, a guaranteed mediator, as uh, the larger catechism puts it. He is a mediator of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing in the Old Testament order. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Again, eternal mediation. Therefore, because he, he is an eternal mediator, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. In other words, the people that he is to save from their sins. So this, this is an exposition, uh, you, could, you could say, of Matthew one twenty one. He is able to save to the uttermost, that's a key word especially, uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So that's Jesus' mediation. He is the one who saves. We have to then say that since God alone saves and Jesus alone saves, according to these passages, then the conclusion is Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. His person is Savior and Mediator. That's who he is. And his work is mediation and salvation. That's what he does. There's just actually, also, if you want to read it, Andrew, I think this is a great one, too, of Acts chapter 4, where uh, Peter and uh, John go before the Sanhedrin, and Peter witnesses to them. 4, verse 12. In the context here, Peter and John have been pulled in before the Sanhedrin because they healed a man. And uh, yeah, uh, among other things, I'll just read uh, starting at verse eight. So this is Peter before the Sanhedrin. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and the elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, so note that emphasis on the name, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. There you have it, that Jesus, in Jesus' name, is salvation, and there is no other name in which salvation may be had. And we tie this together now with where the Heidelberg is going with this. So at the end of answer 29, it says, because no salvation is to be sought or found in any other Question answer 30 goes on in some ways, you could say a hot button issue at the time of the writing of the Reformation. Uh, And then in many ways today, something that continues on. We want to be saved by someone other than Jesus. We want to find our salvation. We want shortcuts to our salvation. We want to work harder to make sure that we are assured of our salvation. We want to contribute in some way or otherwise have someone else help contribute to it. Question answer 30 says, do such then believe in the only Savior Jesus who seek their salvation and welfare of saints of themselves or anywhere else? So in other words, are you believing in Jesus Christ if you believe that saints or something else can help save you, can make it easier Or even yourself. Can you save yourself by your works, Mm -hmm. by your own actions, by your own inherent worth or goodness? Yeah, so it's, can you be your own mediator or do you need any other mediators in addition to Jesus? Right. So are people believers then if if they hold on to that kind of system? Do they really believe Jesus Christ is their only savior for their salvation? And the answer from uh, the Heidelberg is no, they do not. For though those sorts of people boast of him in words, oh, I believe in Jesus, my only savior. In deeds, they deny the only savior, Jesus For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find in him all things necessary to their salvation. So in in the context of the Heidelberg, it's clearly uh, and first and foremost a reference to the cult of the saints, the worship and uh, seeking the mediation of the saints and those uh, that that heavenly treasury of merits, you know, the the concept here historically is simply that and to this day in the Roman Catholic Church uh, and in Eastern Orthodoxy, that there were people who, you know, who basically were able to live uh, as super believers, super Christians that, you know, were higher than other people. Um, They were so holy and pure enough. uh, They did enough good deeds and these kind of things in order to basically be beatified, to to receive uh, the divine vision of sorts in this life even, and sometimes even afterwards. Basically, they were worthy to be really considered a holy one, a saintly one. And so these people, uh, who better to help you get to Jesus than someone who has so perfectly and purely walked the path before you? The idea in Rome is that they have a a lot of grace in Rome. Rome is not devoid of grace. It's just that you need more and more and more grace. You need all the grace you can get all the time. Now, if you need so much grace to be saved, to keep covering your sins, if that's the case, then uh, not only is more grace good and more grace better, then having more mediators is good. Having more mediators is better than having just one mediator, Jesus Christ. So they'll seek out the other saints who kind of help, you know, as kind of shortcuts to help draw from their rewards to help ask, hey, intercede for me before God. Pray to him. You you see him now. 
uh, then, then pray to him for me. So they want to get as much grace as possible in this life. And so they will seek it out anywhere. Their system is built on many mediators, even their earthly uh, priests. That's why they're priests in their parishes. They're priests because they are earthly mediators. I mean, we beat up on Rome a lot in this podcast, and yet we don't beat up on Rome enough. We could do nothing but beat up on Rome, and we haven't done enough. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, it definitely um, is talking about this very explicitly and clearly, uh, this cult of the saints, this treasury of merits, a system of penance mm-hmm. um, that you know, you basically do part of something to atone for your sins or to to earn the grace and merit and whatever that by which your sins might be pardoned. And even if you don't do enough in this life, you get a second shot in purgatory as long as you don't commit a mortal sin. It's just an entirely perverse system it's a perversion of the what the scriptures teach about this and this is why i mean ultimately rome has to have not scripture as their highest as their sole highest authority but they also have to add the magisterium and tradition alongside of them maybe another discussion for another time Um, but this is not exclusively though an issue of rome because it does also include not only salvation and security and saints, but also says in themselves and elsewhere. And I'm reminded as we look at this, uh, we've been doing a midweek study at our church on the book of Galatians. And this is going back to the, the, the founding days of the church. And you had the problem there of the Judaizers who believed and were teaching and insisting that, you know, to be a Christian was not enough. You also had to do the ceremonial law, circumcision and all the various things that went with that. You basically had to become a Jew in order to fully and properly become a Christian. And Paul in Galatians condemns this in the sharpest of terms. It's interesting, too, because it kind of shows a pattern like Caleb was talking about with Rome, where it's like, well, if grace is good, isn't more grace good? <laughs> gooder. Yeah. If gr- gr- grace good, more grace gooder. Um, but you kind of see that pattern even with the Judaizers and really with any system that is legalistic, that is that is moralistic, built on any kind of works righteousness. Is it, it usually starts with some kind of biblical thing, biblical concept, and says, this is good but what if we had more what if we had better of that and the problem is i mean we can't have more or better than scripture because scripture is perfect and what it prescribes for us is good but like so with the judaizers it's like the law is good but what if more law is better gooder yeah more law gooder (laughs) um you know what what if it what if not just the moral law continues to bind us as is the clear teaching of paul but what if what if we also still kept the ceremonial law and and yeah paul i mean he anathematizes those who would who would teach this and do this and he says that it's basically apostasy from the faith to go along with something like this. You know, at one point in mm-hmm. Galatians, he expresses his grief and his fear. He says that I may have labored over you in vain. You know, he went there and, and ministered and many converts were made there in Galatia. People became Christians. And he's like wondering, is it all for naught? Simply because they thought maybe more law gooder. You get a similar thing. First Corinthians one thirteen. There's uh, the controversy in, in Corinth where, you know, people are dividing up by factions, right? You know, he says in First Corinthians one twelve to 13, 
Uh, each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, that is Peter, or I am of Christ. And then he asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is one of the issues of the cult of the saints. Did St. Anthony die for you? You know, was Mary crucified for you or baptized? Were you baptized in the name of Mary? You're seeking out aid to salvation from mere, fallible, sinful people. Is salvation actually in Christ then? If you are seeking an aid to salvation in these people or even uh, in living people, Oftentimes, people might, uh, you know, gravitate towards one single pastor, pre a celebrity preacher of some sort, and store up all of their faith and hope, really, not at times in the word, but really in, in that person and their charisma, their preaching. And then what happens if, let's say, that person were to apostatize, you know, commit a gross sin or something, and, and they, they're, they're removed from their preaching position uh, sometimes people will suddenly have their faith shattered uh, or really because they didn't have faith actually stored up in Christ so much as in the preacher, in that person. Yeah. Or that person, you know, there's a faction, they split, the, the person, uh, you know, does something grievous and then they, you know, get defrocked or go and they leave and, and start another church and people go with them. Sometimes the reason for that is not for the sake of truth. Uh, and for the purity of the gospel um, and the preaching of the gospel. But uh, sometimes it's simply because they're following the man. You know, uh, I'm thinking of Mark Driscoll, for example, but yeah, just to name a name there. Yeah. Or maybe uh, perhaps another form that this can take is um, attributing to certain behaviors and certain external activities uh, as being more of the substance of Christianity. So we're Christians because we behave a certain way in public. We don't swear. We, we don't drink. We don't dance or play cards or uh, go out to the bars on the weekends. And we homeschool our kids and we do all these things. Now, not to say anything about any of the, those things, you know, all are or can be good in various prudential applications and stuff. But none of them are what makes you a Christian. None of them are what saves you. Uh, none of those are going to provide mediation for your sins, any of your works. So this, again, gets back to what the answer here is talking about, uh, finding salvation in yourselves. You can be the most stalwart of family values type people, and you could be a Mormon, or you could be a, Rom a Roman Catholic doing all these other things we've been talking about, or you could be an atheist or agnostic. You probably aren't if you're doing all of those things, but, you know, it's possible. You could be a Muslim and doing a lot of those things. And this is, again, not to say that any of those things are necessarily bad. I mean, you know, they may have their place, but, again, none of these are what saves. It is Christ and Christ alone that saves. You know, as the hymn says, that thou must save and thou alone. Yeah, First John 1, 7, you know, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You have to think of little words like that. I mean, it cleanses us from all sin. And if, if that's the case, I mean, are we talking only the sins that we've committed up to that point or past, present, future? Future sins. This is what, you know, uh, Answer 29, the Heidelberg had in mind because he delivers us from all our sins. 
and saves us. Mm -hmm. So if his name is Jesus because he saves us from our sins, if we have the system like the cult of the saints, or uh, if we're thinking, well, I need to keep contributing to my to my salvation, do better and better and better and this kind of stuff and in, in, in order to really be and I have to look a certain way uh, and be a certain way to the uttermost, <laughs> uh, I have to be even more perfect. If we're thinking like that, then um, then we're not believing that Jesus is worthy of his own name, Savior. Yeah. And this isn't to say that we we are to not strive for righteousness, that we are to not strive for a life, uh, a pious life, a good life of holiness. But we don't do it for our salvation itself. We do it out of pure thankfulness to what has been worked and we do it by mm. not our own righteousness for we have none but we do it because the righteousness of christ uh, dwells in us by his own very holy spirit yeah and when question 30 talks about you know it, it puts in the the either or either jesus is not a perfect savior or those who in true faith accept this savior having him all they need for their salvation when we talk about perfect i mean yes jesus was ethically and morally perfect that's not all that's being said here we're talking about perfect in a sense of wholeness and completion uh, jesus is all the savior we need and the only savior we need he saves basically the point here is either he saves completely or he's not our savior at all. I think we can also point at the language of the larger here, where we can put this in another way, because we're saying, is he savior? Well, that also entails his mediation. Is Jesus Christ mm -hmm. a perfect mediator or not? So the, the answer there, if you want to read that there in the larger catechism, or, or just all 40, I guess. Yeah. So 40, we've looked at 40 yeah. before, but just by reminder, mm -hmm. why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? It was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man. And this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. So again, that he is our mediator. We rest not on the works of ourselves or of anyone else but on his works the works that he has done as god and man as our mediator and, and that's a huge thing as god and man he reconciles us to himself so mm -hmm. if then we're saying is he a perfect savior or not was his work of infinite value or not right was it worthy or not or or was it uh, is he a perfect mediator or not but then also are we reconciled or not have we not been reconciled perfectly to God through him? And that's the scary thing if we're if we're looking to someone else or to saints for contribution to our salvation. We're also saying, was God able to reconcile us to himself or not? And then there's also regarding the saints, it shows how wholly inadequate they are to mediate for us because however good or pious or whatever they may have been in their lives there, they're not God. They have no ability on their own to access God, to buy anything in them, have this to share in, in God's being in essence like Christ does. They are just wholly unqualified to be mediators for us. This whole concept here, this kind of approach of works salvation and a plethora of mediators is a credit card debt system. 
Mm-hmm. Let's just say you have a million dollars of credit card debt. That's pretty small as comparison to sin. <laughs> if you have a million dollars in credit card debt, basically all these various saints, they help chip away like, you know, a fraction of a penny at a time when they're working for you, when they're interceding for you or whatever. You're getting your debt chipped away like a tenth of a penny at a time or something. That's kind of what this system's thinking. And I mean, there's been all these other gross superstitions that have grown out of it, too. Things like relics and indulgences. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that provoked the Protestant Reformation in the first place. You know, the idea that if you give so much money, that'll buy your way out of purgatory. Which the whole concept of purgatory being another thing that's risen out of this. It just basically, if you don't make enough payments on your credit card in this life, you have to go spend some time in the Google log after this life to to pay it off your soul gets repoed <laughs> yeah basically yeah basically it's like debtor's prison uh but but in the afterlife um and so so there's that and then yeah those are indulgences and then the relics where because you went and looked at one of john the baptist's several severed heads you know then you get some time off in purgatory you get more grace for that or even though most of the relics are obviously fake if not almost all of them and it's like you know and and so then that produces this whole thing of basically they do all this bending and twisting to say that it's not idolatry, but at the end, functionally, you end up worshiping these objects. You end up worshiping these objects, end up worshiping these other people. So it just produces this whole entire idolatrous and superstitious cult. And that is what Roman Catholicism now is. People aren't going to like to hear that if they have any sympathies mm-hmm. there, but but it's true. It's exactly what it is when you hold it up in light of Scripture and what it teaches about Christ's soul mediation for us. There's really nothing else that you're left with. Yeah, it's a false worship system that ensnares you into complete reliance upon that system itself, which is defined mm-hmm. internally by that church, as in that the church itself is your salvation. We can get into it later when we go further in the Apostles' Creed with the confession on the church. I believe a holy Catholic church. We don't believe in the holy Catholic church. The distinction being in the preposition in the the article. The church is not an object of faith. Christ is the only object of faith. And the church is his possession, Mm-hmm. The church is not itself an object that we believe faith in. In fact, the section of the creed starts with, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then I believe a holy Catholic church. The church is something born out of God's action of election and of the people uh, that are grafted into him. The church is mm-hmm. people, the people of God, but it's therefore not an object of faith. We'd be placing an object of faith in people, and that's what Rome wants you to do. Mm-hmm. It raises all these problems, too, because you talk about you know faith in the system, and then this is also a problem when the system decides to change itself, as we've recently talked about at some length with mm-hmm. our looks at the papacy, mm-hmm. uh, both historically and currently. You know, if... You get a pope now that decides that giving whatever qualifications affixed to them giving blessings to gay couples is now okay. 
that goes against the entire history of the church. It's like you have nothing to do. If your faith is in the system, you have to follow the system wherever it goes. Yeah, it's detached from the word. You have no objective truth or objective reality to cling to. Yeah, Christ is not actually the cornerstone. The word is not actually the foundation. The word made flesh is not actually the foundation of the church. So we don't need to go to scripture with objective doctrines to hold these things. Those doctrines can be fluid for Rome because it depends on how the Holy Spirit is working in the people, in the church, wherever he's leading them in uh, the present day and culture. So there's a fluidity there. I was going to say earlier that yeah, all this is very ironic where you have uh, Hebrews 12 verse 1, which is often appealed to uh, as a proof text by those who have a cult of, of saints for why you need a saint uh, in the treasury of merits. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This cloud of witnesses is often appealed to as the, the saints uh, and their intercessions for us. But then verse 2, it says... <laughs> Read this from verse 1 into verse 2. Again, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. The author, which the Greek there is, is literally the originator, the one who originates our faith, and the finisher, the one who perfects our faith. So from first to last, it's in Christ. So the beginning and end of our faith, yeah. Yeah, it says how, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down, meaning uh, often an idiom for a completion, an ending of action, uh, at the right hand, that is at the power of the throne of God. So in other words, Jesus Christ has all authority. Uh, and that this was written, his authority uh, for salvation is, is written before the foundations of the earth and shall be forevermore, in that he has all dominion uh, and all governance by his word of power. It's forevermore. Uh, salvation is secured in Christ. Christ has to be the only savior, the only mediator. Yep. Yep. But more grace gooder. <laughs> unless it's not. Unless it's, unless it's not gooder. Yeah, it batter. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need a, a, a thermos now with that. <laughs> more, more grace, gooder. Yeah, if we ever get into merch, maybe that's uh, maybe that's something. But we probably won't because we're just not good at things like that. It's true. Anyways, well, I I think we we tapped out of that uh, well enough. I think we've uh, covered all of it. Yep. So <laughs> this has been once for all delivered. We've compared catechisms, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day eleven, with questions forty and forty one, roughly of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, we beat up on the Papists some more because uh, such is our lot in life. Because Reformed Presbyterian. Yep. Because we are what we are, and we do what we do. <laughs> so if you have any questions comments complaints you can send those through all the usual channels ofadpodcast at gmail.com at ofadpodcast on facebook or whatever they're calling twitter now we always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you like what we're doing here, you can consider becoming a paid subscriber. If you are a paid subscriber, make sure you use your benefits, join the group chat. You can leave comments on our website. Uh, we might 
uh, have some outtakes and bonus content. We'll see. But yeah, so anyway, Caleb, take us out or something. Okay. Installed. Heidi. Hit, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Again, uh, thank you, Andrew, in saying all the things that you have just said. I am taking them out by repeating those things now. <laughs> no, no, uh, that yeah, we know that our releases can be sometimes sporadic or varying in length. We're both ministers in our respective denominations, you know, so we, we get a bit busy at times, but these things are, are beneficial for us, uh, you know, and kind of working through these things and remembering what it is that we ourselves confess and subscribe to and believe. If this is edifying to you, it would benefit us too in, in interacting with us on our, uh, you know, our pages and so on. So that's our attempt at marketing and social media management. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.